Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you please to open them to 1 John chapter 2. And today we'll be in verses 15 to 17, continuing our short series touching on some of the themes in this book. Uh, one of those themes is to give assurance to believers who need it. Another is to expose those who have it and should not have it. Uh, and one of the ways that this is done in 1 John is by contrasting light and darkness. There are those who are in the light and they live a certain way, not to get into the light, but because they are in the light. God put them into the light when he saved them and they walk in the light. Opposite of that are those who walk in darkness. And they live a certain way because they are in the darkness. And there are distinctions between those who walk in light and those who live in darkness. One of those distinctions, one of those differences, the ways you can tell, is those who are in the light, they acknowledge their sin. Well, those who are in the darkness deny their sin. That's chapters, uh, chapter 1, 6 through 10. And then you get to chapter 2. Those who live in the darkness do not keep his commandments. If anyone says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, it says he is a liar and the truth is not in him. But those who live in the light do keep his commandments. They walk as Jesus walked. Those who love God earnestly desire to follow in the footsteps of the Son. Not perfectly, but consistently. If you look at their lives, you are not going to find a perfect person. But you will see somebody who wants to be like Christ. Sometimes they fall short, sometimes they fall down, but they're striving after Him. In the most obvious way we strive to be like Jesus is by loving one another. It's by loving the church. He, he loved the church. He laid down His life for her. And if we walk in His footsteps, we will love our brothers and sisters in Christ. This, this cannot be overstated. Every disagreement, in every argument you have, every offense, the first question to be asked is what does love require? And most of the time, love will require overlooking the transgression. But even when it doesn't, and love requires that the offense be dealt with, it still must be addressed in love. And, and this insistence on love should come as no shock. I mean, Christians are universally called to love. We are called to love God. We are called to love one another. We're called to love our families, to love strangers, to love our enemies. If the Lord of love is taking up residence in our hearts, love is simply non-negotiable for the Christian. Reminds me, of, uh, reminds me of a story I heard once. A husband uh, went to his pastor, and he I said, I'm going to leave my wife. I just can't, I just can't, I can't be around her anymore. And, uh, and the pastor said, well, you, you know, you have to love your wife. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. It's, it's, it's impossible to be in the, in the same building with her. And so the pastor told him, okay, here's what I want you to do. Go and get a real estate agent, and I want you to find the house next door to where you're living now. I want you to buy the house no matter what it costs and, and move in there and then love your neighbor. And he said, no, you don't understand. We, we argue over everything. It's a constant fight. And the pastor said, well, so you're, you're telling me that now you and your wife have become enemies. And he goes, that's exactly it. We're enemies. And he said, well, love your enemies. There's no getting around it. If you're a Christian, you have to love. You can't escape from that. The 
Christian is called to a life of love for those around them. But we are not called to love everything. There are some things believers are commanded not to love. And if they do love these things, they may not even be in the faith. There are things believers are warned about and forbidden from loving. And one of those things is the subject of our text this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for sending your Son. God, we have so much to be thankful for. You truly have not withheld from us any good thing. And I pray, Lord, this morning for your people that they would know what it means to not love the world. Lord, the world is a joy killer. It sucks the life out of people. But Lord, you are the life giver. And I pray for your people this morning that they would find a renewed, a renewed holiness, a renewed spiritual vitality, that they would be renewed in you. Lord, meet with us today. It is to you we look, and in your name we hope. Amen. Well, this is a passage that at first it seems to be incredibly straightforward. I mean, you could distill it down to four words. That's what it says in the King James. Love not the world. And when everyone hears it, they immediately knows what it means. They immediately know what it means. Right? When I read, do not love the world, all of you know. I know what that means. Don't love the world. And that's a problem. Because then if you ask for a definition of what that means you will very quickly discover no two people are on the same page. That's the danger of this passage. It means whatever uh, whoever is reading it wants it to mean, and being defensive by nature, all of us are, we give the passage a meaning that places it safely away from us. And it's been common, especially in history, to hear worldliness passionately denounced, when only a very small sliver of worldliness is being addressed and the rest ignored, or when one speaks of the world, they define it entirely according to their preferences. And so that is the danger of this passage and the key to understanding it. What is the world? What is it that we're told no Christian loves? Well, certainly it doesn't mean people, human beings who populate the world. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. So there's clearly a difference between the world in John 3.16 and the world that we're reading about here. One, God loves and we're called to emulate God in loving and in the other, we're forbidden to love. And so there's a sense in which we are to love the world and there's a, another sense in which we are not. But what is that sense? In the history of the church, some have taken an aesthetic view. 
And uh, they said, well, the world is the world. It's what you can see and feel and touch. It's a material world. And then they've gone and they've become monks and they've cut themselves off from whatever they would consider worldliness. They want to get as far away as possible. Try their best to get out of this world, out of the natural world. Well, they were totally wrong. That's not what this passage means. It does not mean do not love creation. It cannot mean creation. It cannot mean the universe because if you understand the scriptures, you understand that the created world is good. Now it's corrupt, it's fallen, it's, it's tainted by sin, but it is good. It wasn't trees and rocks and livestock that sinned. It was mankind that sinned. And so it doesn't mean don't love nature or the material world. In fact, creation is full of things you can love and should love. You can even enjoy things that are not strictly spiritual. You can enjoy playing a game with your kids. You can enjoy a, a walk on the beach. You can enjoy so much. It's, it's built in residual goodness that remains after the fall. Lots of things in this world and the natural order of things are still good. And the appropriate use of them is to enjoy them with thanksgiving for the glory of God. And so the world doesn't mean the material world. There are others who define worldliness simply by a handful of things that they abstain from. Uh, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't play cards, and I don't dance. Gave this up and, and gave that up, and they're just as wrong, maybe even more wrong. The scriptures never put those things that I listed, at least those four, in the category of worldliness. The scriptures do not, not once. And yet that's all some people can think of when they think of worldliness. Uh, a handful of things they don't do. Maybe it's a large handful, but it's a list of don'ts. And while I don't think this needs much explanation, you all know the kind of people I'm talking about. You've heard them, encountered them, maybe you're one of them. Well, this is a very poor and misleading definition of worldliness. Still others call worldliness a concern for temporal affairs. And they define it simply as being interested in politics and in social and cultural matters. And they say, well, these things pertain to the world. And if a Christian is involved in them, they're, they're engaged in worldliness. Uh, the Anabaptists, they're probably the most extreme example of this. The uh, Mennonites and the Amish and that kind of thing. But that kind of thinking can creep up anywhere. Worldliness means well, just being interested in the affairs of the world. And of course it's very possible to be too interested and to be overly concerned in the affairs of the world. It can become an idol in anybody's life. But Christians ought to be concerned at least have some concern for them. And that concern and that interest is assuredly not what the apostle means when he speaks of worldliness. Well, in all three of those cases, an alternative definition of the world has been supplied. Normal family relations are not the world. Marriage is not the world. Business, government, sciences, arts, or the like, that's not what he means when he says the world. Those things have been ordained by God, and the church ought to seek to improve them for his glory. Not forsake them. Certainly not forsake those things. Well, if it doesn't mean any of that, what does it mean? How should we define what it means to be worldly? Well, I imagine the best place to get our definition is from verse 16, where John gives his definition of worldliness. And if we were to summarize it succinctly, worldliness would be that whole outlook on life without God a way of living, a way of thinking, a way of life with no regard to the Lord. And he defines it for us in three parts. The first 
is the lust of the flesh. And so well, what is that? It is a, a disordered desire. It is the abuse of something otherwise used would be good. Lust. Lust is always taking things beyond their God-given limitations. Food is good. Our flesh needs food. There's nothing wrong in desiring to eat when you're hungry. But a lust for food becomes gluttony. Rest is good. God made us to need sleep. But a lust for rest becomes slothfulness. Sex is good. God gave it to man and woman in marriage. But when lust takes control, you're left with every kind of perversion imaginable. Lust is when, instead of controlling our desires, we are controlled by them. And so the lust of the flesh is controlled by desires of the flesh. The flesh wants it. It wants it in the wrong way. It wants it without reservation. It will not be satisfied until it has it. It's living only for sensual gratification. Any self-control is exercised only for purely self-serving reasons. It's never for the sake of pleasing God. Someone living in the lust of the flesh has as a great goal of their life nothing more than the pleasures and desires of this world. Lust of the flesh. The next is the lust of the eye. Now you may read this and think, like I thought, well how is this different from the lust of the flesh? Anything that is, uh, anything the flesh desires begins with the eyes. Isn't this just repetition? It's not repetition. There is more at work here than just wanting what you see. I believe here what is in, in view is the opposite of walking by faith. You see Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 5-7, he says, we walk by faith and not by sight. What he means by that is we see things as they really are. We see beyond the appearance of these things. You see this in the book of Revelation. You know, the powers of the world arrayed against the church, they often look invincible, untouchable, unassailable, but faith teaches us to see them as they really are, to see them as they are in God's sight, as temporary and as fragile. I mean, just take the powers today that have arrayed themselves against God and against His people. They appear invincible, but the reality is they're more like a woman drunk riding a beast ready to fall off and be devoured. We understand what we see with our eyes as believers. We, we understand what we see filtered through the realities of God's Word. You say it this way, I, I believe what God says more than what I see. And you do this by faith. You know, when your friends are all out having a good time in sin and that's all you see, living by faith reminds us that the wages of sin is death. And being reminded of that, we see things differently. That's the point David is making in Psalm 73. He is jealous of the wicked until he enters into the temple of the Lord. And when he enters into the temple of the Lord, he sees their end and says, I was a fool for being jealous. You can say that by faith. Or even more striking, Elisha, when he's surrounded by the army of the Arameans in 2 Kings 6, I believe. You remember his servant is terrified. He says, we're surrounded. There's enemies on every side. And Elisha says, Lord, give him eyes to see. And the eyes of the servant are opened. And he looks around, and on the hills he sees chariots of fire surrounding the army of the Arameans. He says, those who are with us are more than, than they. But things are not what they appear. 
There are spiritual and eternal realities at work in the world. Well, the one with uh, the one who is in the world, living according to the lust of the eyes, has no faith. No faith of which to speak. None uh, of the kind that we are speaking about, at least. And they are captive to the, what they can see. They can't see anything beyond the appearance of things. They do not have the mind's eye or the eyes of faith. And so to be worldly means to care primarily about the appearance of things rather than the spiritual reality. To be worldly means you don't see things as passing away. You don't see the world as perishing, but as all there is. You don't see things as God reveals them. Now this has a tremendous impact on how somebody thinks and lives and arranges his or her life. The lust of the eyes, controlled by what is seen. And lastly, the pride of life. Worldliness is defined by pride. You say, what is that? It is self-glorification and self-idolatry. It's an insatiable yearning to be exalted among men. It's pride in material possessions. Pride in things and in accolades and pride for things that moth and rust will destroy. Pride in things that will be forgotten. It's pride in what will perish with no regard for eternal treasures. And it's not limited to material things. This could be an uncontrolled desire to be liked by others. Now everyone wants to be liked and there's nothing necessarily wrong with it. We're commanded to live at peace with everyone as long as it depends on us. But when fear of man dominates your every decision and you have no concern whatsoever for the fear of God and what He thinks about you, this is the pride of life. Or it could be pride in learning. There's nothing wrong with learning if it's done with a mind to love because while pride puffs up, love builds up. Now it reminds me of a, let me give an example of a professor I heard of once, quite well known, written a number of books, a number of commentaries on the Bible, and someone was uh, recounting a personal conversation they had with this professor, and they pressed the author on what he really thought about the inspiration of Scripture. He, he said, do you really believe, do you believe that God inspired the Bible? And the professor said, oh, if I say that, if I say that the Bible is inspired by God, I'll never get a chair at Oxford. He denied the inspiration of Scripture to get ahead. He said, well, the Bible is just a book written by men, and he said it in order to secure himself a higher position in this life. That's pride of life. Nothing more important than getting ahead. Nothing more important than rising above the rest, and nothing worse than meekness and humble service. You see this, by the way, coming back into the world, at least in our culture, in a powerfully destructive way. You know, Christianity has so influenced even our, our fallen Western culture over the last thousand, two thousand years, that most of out those who are even outside of the church for a long time they valued things like humility and things like gentleness. They saw pride as a great vice. If someone was proud, that was bad. It's not like that anymore. The pride of life has become a virtue in our modern world. We've returned to the, the paganism of the Romans and the Greeks. You know, my wife and I were uh, having a conversation the other day about Zeus and trying to figure out why was he so prominent among the, the, the Greek mythological gods, and we were trying to figure that out. Uh, you know, he's not the strongest, he's not the smartest, he's not the most powerful, and 
He certainly doesn't have anything that we would consider virtuous. Why was he the, the chief among their gods? Well, because he emulated the ideals of the world, the ideals of the people who fabricated him. And what was he? He was ruthless in getting everything he wanted. He was unstoppable in his ambition. He embodied the pride of life, and so he was worshipped as the chief among their gods. The pride, it's, it is the most destructive kind of worldliness of all. Not only is it destructive, it's degrading. It degrades what it means to be human, a human being, to be proud. You say, how does it degrade our humanity? Living for the glory of self, listen, it distorts the soul. Why? Because we were made to give glory to God. That was our purpose, to image him, to reflect him, to exalt him. And so when a person lives for the glory of self, they're working against their very nature. They, they become twisted and contorted. It's, it's like when a wire is used for a rope. You ever had to use a wire for a rope? It's no good to be a wire anymore, and it makes a poor rope. Well, that's what happens to people. They were made for one thing, but have embraced its opposite, and in doing so, disfigured their souls. Pride is a tragedy. And the pride of life, the pride of self-exaltation, it has no place in the life of a believer. But that is the word worldliness, as John defines it here in 1 John chapter 2. Life without God. And God, he is not in any of their thoughts. God and his word do not factor into any of their thinking. And seeing this, you see why it's impossible for a Christian to love the world. To love the world in the sense that John is talking about here means to banish God from all of your thoughts and actions. A Christian has an entirely different way of thinking about these things. They think about the world properly and they use it appropriately within the means that God has given. And they see the spiritual realities at work in the world and they're, they're not concerned for self-exaltation but their concern is to live for the glory of God. And the reason they do this is not because they're better than others or smarter or more righteous. The reason they do not love the world is because Christ is in us and Christ loved. None of those things. He did not love the world in the sense that we've been talking about. He, he didn't exalt himself and he saw all things rightly. And if he is in you, you will begin to do the same. You will begin to restrain your lusts. You will begin to interpret what you see by faith. And you will begin to seek the glory of God over your own. And you will do it because Christ, who is in you, controls his desires, lived entirely by faith, and sought to glorify his Father. This is why the Bible unequivocally says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. They are two totally incompatible ways of living. And if you're a person who does love the world, not as defined by this person or this person or that definition, or as defined however you would define it, but as it is defined here, according to Scripture, if you love the world and the things of the world, if you're controlled and governed by the lust of the flesh, no mind to restrain it, and you see everything as merely it appears, and you never consider it by faith, and if your great ambition is your own self centered goals, just to be made much of, and you could not care less about God if he was glorified, 
then make no mistake, you love the world. If you can live as though God does not even exist, live like a, a practical atheist, just like everybody else in the world around you, you're walking in darkness and not in the light. You're loving what is temporary. You're, you're giving yourself to things that are passing away and spending your energy on what will rot. You're wasting your life living for the world. The things of this world are dying. The things of this world are temporary. Everything gained will soon be lost, rendered meaningless in eternity. And that's what the world lives for. Things that will perish. Not the Christian. The Christian is the person who has pegged all of their hope and life on Christ. And they have life. Life in abundance and a life that will abide. They have peace. Not like the world gives, but they have His peace. And though they live in this world, they are preparing for the world to come. That's the Christian in the world, but not of the world. Well, now a question. Is it possible then for the genuine believer to be at times worldly? Can a believer fall back into this kind of living? The answer is, yes, they can. And I want to speak specifically now to those who in one way or another are headed back towards the world, to these worldly ways. One of the problems that plagued Israel in the wilderness, and plagued Moses to be sure, but it was the, the constant draw and pull that Egypt had on, on the people. Egypt was, you know, they weren't in Egypt anymore, but Egypt was in their hearts. And when they looked out over the wilderness, even the, the promised land beyond that, the only thing that they could think of was how wonderfully they had lived under Pharaoh and how much they wanted to go back. It's almost unbelievable when you read it. At one point, they even planned, let's murder Moses and get a new leader who will take us back there. In the end, in Deuteronomy 17, God commands them never to return. He says, don't even go to Egypt to get horses. They were to remove Egypt from their thoughts. Going back was not an option. Well, there's a lesson there for the church. Egypt is symbolic of the world, of the life of slavery that we were saved from. And we are commanded never to return there. Never go back, God says, to that place of your bondage. That's a command. Did you know that? Do not go back to the life from which you were saved. Don't go back into the, 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 the miry pit. Don't go back to living as the world. Now, does that mean it never happens? Does that mean a believer never goes back, at least in some way, for some time? You know, there's a path that leads back to Egypt. Does this mean the believer never starts walking in that direction? No, it does happen sometimes. In fact, it happens often enough to have a name. When people begin down the path again to Egypt, back to the world, they're called backsliders. They are sliding back into what they used to be, sliding back into that muddy pit, back into their old 
godless ways of thinking. And it's a, a dangerous place to be. It's a slippery place. I mean, nobody, nobody falls away from the faith without first backsliding in great degrees. But it's, it's, it's more than just a condition. It's not just a condition Christians can be in. We think of it that way sometimes, right? Either you're mature, weak, strong believer, doubting believer, or you're backsliding. Mature, weak, immature, strong, backslide, that kind of thing. Backsliding does not belong in that category. Being immature or mature or strong faith and weak faith, none of those are sinful. There's nothing sinful about being mature or immature. Yes, you're expected to grow up, but it's not wrong. You're, if you are a new believer, you are going to be an immature believer. Backsliding is not in that category. Backsliding is a God-dishonoring, spirit-grieving, Christ-rejecting, grace-trampling, gospel-abusing sin. That's what backsliding is. It's not just a condition you're in to, to come back out of. It is all of those things, and it is serious. And that's why it's here in a message on loving the world, because that's where backsliding ends. It is the path that leads back to Egypt. It, it leads back to a life lived in the flesh, back to the kingdom of darkness, back to the devil and to the world. And it's a, it's a slide, isn't it? Not a leap. Nobody just wakes up one morning back in the world. It happens by degrees. How does it begin? Always begins with a loss of interest in secret prayer. It's the most private thing. It's the first thing to go. You just stop praying. And then other things begin to fall away. Personal devotion, concern for eternal things, and it just it spreads like a decay in your soul and you begin to grow cold toward the things of God. And when that happens... The world begins to become attractive again, and, and the spirit of this age begins to drive out spiritual life, and Christians become lazy and sloppy and selfish, more selfish than serving. You begin to tolerate sin that you once would fight against, and sins long thought dead are resurrected. You begin to consume entertainment that stains and hardens the heart. You give in to temptations that you Never have a thought now of repentance from. As your heart grows harder and more calloused, it, it, it becomes unable to identify those things as sin. You begin to conform to patterns of disobedience instead of patterns of obedience. Instead of being transformed by the renewal of your mind, you conform more and more to worldly ways of thinking. Ultimately, backsliding leads to a double life, a life of hypocrisy and ultimately to falling away entirely, departing from the faith you thought you had. Nothing will darken your soul more than this. And what's ironic is that the believer who is living close to God is more afraid to fall than the backslider. A backslider isn't worried about falling. He often isn't even aware that he is falling. <coughs> and listen, is falling. Not in danger of falling, the backslider is in the process of falling. They do not need to fall away. They don't need to fall all the way. But they are falling in that direction. And what will happen is one of two possible outcomes, and there are only two. Either they will fully and finally walk away from the faith, 
showing they never had a true possession of it, or God will come for them. God will come for them, and he will get them, and he will bring them back. Not after 20 years, either. He will come and get them and bring them in. Maybe he's coming for some of you right now. Backsliding is a serious issue, but it's not a hindrance to God. And he will send his Holy Spirit to deliver all of those who belong to him from their backsliding. No enemy will keep God from blessing his people. And if the backslider is a true child of God, the Holy Spirit will deal with them, come for them, and bring them back. And if you see that in your heart today, repent of it and go to the Lord, and he will bring you back. Now, at this point, some of you are saying, maybe you're saying, oh, that's me. That's me. I'm, I'm backslidden. I always have a cloud over my head. You know, in my spiritual homestead, it's always raining. I am surely a hair's breadth from falling away forever, and that's all I ever am. Let me talk to you next. You who dread that you're always going to fall and constantly are believing you are, and that the Lord always, always keeps you at, at, a hand's, uh, at an arm's length. So I'm not talking to backsliders now. I'm not talking to those who really couldn't care less about Christ. I'm talking specifically to you who struggle to know if you really do belong to the Lord. And, and to do that, I, we'll, we'll back up a little bit. We'll zoom out a little. We're going to look at more than just do not love the world. We've been looking at a, at a series at what are sometimes called marks of grace. Marks of grace, they're indicators of the Spirit's work in your life. Or if you prefer evidence of salvation, things like confessing sin, keeping the commandments, loving the church, not loving the world. And as we look at those things, some of you who really do love the Lord, you had your assurance stripped away. And if you have, I think you may be misusing these examinations. People misuse them all the time. You say, what do you mean? I mean, if you are taking these things like if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then you, you, you look over your life and you say, well, here's an area where I still have some affection for the world. And then you say to yourself, well, look, I, I, I love the world here, so the love of the Father must not be in me. If you're doing that, using these verses this way, you might be using them wrong. These questions, these tests, proofs, marks of grace... There are actually about 30 of them if you work through 1 John, the Beatitudes, the Fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. These are not given to take assurance away from genuine believers. That's not why they're here. They are given to increase assurance in genuine believers. John says, I write these things so you may know you have eternal life. He doesn't say, I write these things so that you may know you do not have eternal life. That's important. Because that teaches us how to use these things rightly. And if they are used rightly, that's exactly what they'll do. But if they're used wrongly, they will bring about the exact opposite. When they're used wrongly, they'll strip assurance away. And one of the wrong ways to use them is to separate them from the promises of God. To use them apart from what God has promised. Then it becomes nothing more than assurance or performance-based assurance. And instead of 
the marks of grace in your life, like not loving the world, instead of those bolstering your faith, they become your faith. You're no longer saying, I know I am a Christian because I have put my trust in Christ. And then you bring not loving the world as, as a buttress and put it up against that promise. You say, I know I'm a Christian, or I know I'm not a Christian, because I have or do not have the love of the world in my heart. These marks of grace are meant to serve and confirm the promises, but not to replace them. Once that begins to happen, and you begin to examine yourself apart from gospel promises, you're using them in a way they were never intended to be used. Another way to misuse them is to do so without the help of the Spirit. We don't know ourselves as well as we think. We're prone to overestimate or underestimate our graces, but the Holy Spirit never misses the mark. And he knows exactly where we are and exactly what we need. He's the one who's worked all of salvation in us to begin with. You would never care about Christ in the first place were it not for him. And so you must prayerfully seek his help. Lord, I, I see this in my life. Please help me to know where I'm at. That kind of thing. If you use the examinations without prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit, you will do damage to your soul. And, and on that note, don't deny the Spirit when he comes to help you. You say, what does that mean? Well, I know there are times I really do love the things of God and I, and I fight against the flesh and against the world. And I, I know there are times when I hunger and thirst for righteousness, but I don't do it enough. So I must not be a believer. You know, we're, not, we're not talking about enough. Listen, you can be the most sanctified person who has ever lived and it would not be enough. You will never, ever in this life have any mark of grace as much as you desire to have it. Which is why the scriptures never ask if you have enough, but do you have any of them? And next, you must use them as they're written in the Word. This matters for two reasons. For one, it's a check on our emotions. I mean, very often, we're led by our emotions and not by the Word, and our emotions can, can cloud the Word. The hymnist, William Cooper, he suffered terribly from uh, depression and he was writing to John Newton once about the condition of his soul and he said all of those who put their trust in Christ will be saved of this I am convinced for all except myself it's an extreme case but the point is made he let his thoughts obscure the promises um, another example, maybe more commonly experienced here, take First uh, John 1, 9. You have sinned and you know it. Your conscience troubles you. You feel guilty because you are guilty. And so you do exactly what God tells you to do. You confess your sins and you go to him and you ask for forgiveness. But have you ever done that? <clears throat> and afterwards you come away and you still feel guilty? You still feel unforgiven? You come away and say, I just feel so terrible. Could God ever really forgive me? Your emotions are obscuring the promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise. And if you go to him in confessing your sins, he is faithful and just, and he will purify you from all unrighteousness, whether you feel it or not. The other reason you must use these marks according to the word is because of how easily we can add to them. The passage, this one in particular, love not the world, it's notoriously easy to slip things into that are not there. 
and we can easily add to the marks of grace. And you say, how do we do that? Well, how often have you thought? Well, those who, let's take, keep his commandments. Those who love God keep his commandments. And keeping his commandments looks like doing A, B, and C in that order. That's how you do them. And if you don't do them this way, you're, you're not keeping the commandments. And that's what you end up thinking. I'm not doing this, so I must not be keeping the commandments when whatever A, B, and C are. They're not even mentioned anywhere in 1 John or Galatians 5 or anywhere else in Scripture as marks of grace. Don't add to the Scriptures. Don't do it. Don't do it to yourself. Don't do it to others. If you can't point to a passage and a chapter and a verse and show what it requires, don't make it an evidence of being in the light. Don't make it a mark of God's Spirit at work. And lastly, and by far the most common way these graces are misused, is by expecting to find all of them in equal measure. You say, I, I, I can't have assurance unless I find them all. I just take the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 for way of example. We know that all nine of those fruit come together. They do. You cannot have one without the others. This is true. The Spirit of God comes into your life and then he begins to produce all of the fruit of the Spirit in a person's life the moment they become a Christian. You cannot have one without the others. Now listen, there is a right way to apply this and there is a very wrong way to apply this. Do you know the difference? Some people, knowing this, all of this, you, know, you must have all of the fruit, they apply it this way. They think through them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And they think, well, I'm doing really well on peace and patience. The peace and patience of God, I've got that, but man, I, joy and self-control, I don't see much of that. And if they all come together, then that means my lack of joy and self-control are because I do not really know Him, and my peace and patience are suspect. And that's how they use these marks of grace. If I am lacking one, I must be lacking all. That's using them to strip assurance away. And that's not how they're supposed to be used. That's the wrong way to use them. It doesn't even make sense. You see, apart from the natural man, man apart from God, none of these things exist. No mark of grace, no fruit of the Spirit, not one in an unbelieving person. Not one. That's why they're called fruit of the Spirit. Marks of grace, evidences of salvation, none of them exist in natural man. No human being can have them apart from the saving work of the Spirit because He is the one who creates them in us. And if that's true, and it is, then how many marks of grace do you have to find to know someone is a child of God? We'll say it again. This this, this will help you. This will help you to think about yourself. This will help you when you're counseling other believers and help you think rightly about them. If unbelievers have none of these things, and the only people who have any of these marks of grace are those who are born of the Spirit, how many of them do you need to detect in order to know you are a child of God? One. If you can only discern a single one of them, you can be assured you have them all. It's like an apple tree. How many apples do you need to find on an apple tree to know it's an apple tree? Just one. 
one measly little sour apple. But that's enough. It's not a cherry tree. It's not an oak tree. It's not a maple tree. It's an apple tree. And how many graces do you have to find in yourself to know you belong to Christ? Just one. Because if you do find one, you can be sure the others are there. You just can't see them very well. One genuine fruit is enough. That's how these are meant to be used. And when these safeguards are in place, a believer can even use these examinations carefully and honestly to discover not only where they stand with God, but by His grace they can discover their strengths and weaknesses and where they need to grow. Just let me give a, a practical example. Practical example. In this. So let's say you're doing what Paul calls you to do in 2 Corinthians. You're examining yourself to see if you're in the faith. And so you look at 1 John 2.15. You say, do not love the world. I don't know how I'm doing. I, I think I was loving the world yesterday. I stumbled here. I disobeyed there. I was tempted by it here. And, and well, if I didn't love the world, how could I be tempted by it? The Puritans are so helpful at this point. Anthony Burgess, he, he says, if that's you, and you can't find one particular mark of grace, well, then try another. Do you love the brothers? You say, I, I don't know about that one either. Well, try another. Do you acknowledge and confess your sin? And you say, well, yes, I am doing that. That I can't deny. Or do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? The world doesn't do that. Only those indwelled by the Spirit of God hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ. And if you're doing that, then don't worry. You have one of these marks, you have them all, because God does a complete work. And you will never have one without the other. So if you genuinely find one, just one, all the rest are there, though you might not be able to see them. The Puritan writer William Perkins on this, he, he wrote, Assurance is like a beaded necklace. He said, if you can find just one bead and, and tug on it on the necklace, the whole necklace, all the others will move. They're connected. And so if you can tug on one mark of grace, you can know you have the others, even though they're small and even though you can't see them every day. Don't worry. If you can find one, you can cling to that. But what if you can't find one? You're having a really bad day and you can't find any evidence of the Spirit at work in you at all. He says, well, go to the promises of God and cling to them. What if you can't find comfort there? Well, go to prayer and ask God to forgive you for being unable to see His work in you. And because His mercies are new every morning, try again tomorrow. Or if you habitually can't see any marks of grace, maybe you aren't saved after all. And I'm still paraphrasing Perkins here. So, but before you conclude that, before you conclude that you're lost, let me give you the most basic mark of the grace of God. If you can find no others in your life, no evidence of God's work, ask yourself this, because every believer can say this, whether they've been a Christian for a day or for 90 years. You can say yes to this if you're a Christian. Do you desire to know Jesus better? Do you want to know honestly more of Him? Not just about Him, but more of Jesus. The answer is yes, you don't have anything to fear. Only people who desire to know more of Christ are those who are in Christ. That's how these tests are meant to be used, not to strip believers of their hope. If you use them in that way, it not only hinders your assurance, it hinders your sanctification, it damages your growth for God, it, 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 it destroys everything. And they can be used in that way, but that's not why they were given. 
Sometimes they can be used in that way to expose a false convert, and that's an appropriate use of them. But that's not how to apply them to believers. They were given to bolster the faith of the weak. And if your faith is weak, I pray that you'd grab hold of at least one of those beads on that necklace and hold on. It is enough to keep you to the end. Well, let's pray. Lord, I, I pray for those here this morning who are backsliding. I pray, Lord, that you would show them the danger of that condition, of that carelessness towards you. Lord, bring them out of it, that they would desire to know you, Lord, renew them and bring them back. Don't let them continue on this path that leads to perishing. I pray for those who do love the world. And the question, do they desire Jesus to know you more? The answer for them is no. I pray for them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. Lord, give them the eyes to see the foolishness that they have embraced in the world around them. Give them the eyes to see, Lord, that their end is destruction, that their bellies are their gods, and that they will be betrayed by everything they've hoped in, in the end. Let them see it, Lord, so that they would turn from what is perishing and cling to what is eternal, cling to Christ. And I pray, Lord, for those who are struggling in the faith, Lord, who always seem to have a cloud over their head and wonder, Lord, where you are and where they are. I pray, Lord, that you would give them assurance today. Lord, you want your children to have assurance. What kind of father doesn't want his children to know he is their father? You want your children to know that they belong to you. And I pray, God, that you would do that this morning. For everyone here who is a genuine child of yours, reach out to them, Lord, that they would know. Thank you for these marks of grace in our lives, Lord, that, that don't exist in the world, but they do exist where your spirit dwells. Thank you that you've worked them in us, Lord, for our comfort, for our perseverance and preservation, and for our joy, Lord. Help us to love you better than we do. Lord, you cannot love us better than you have. Amen.